up world, what's up YouTube, what's up Twitter, what's up Facebook, what's up social media? It is I, Lee Zeller's Basement Show, Basement Talk. This is a special, this is a really special show for me. I'm like, you, sometimes you get to talk with different people in this field, sometimes you get to meet different people in this field, and it means a lot. And sometimes I want to share these people with my listening audience, however few it is, could be five, ten, I don't know, but whoever's listening. I wanted to bring on a really special guest, another filmmaker right here in Cincinnati, Ohio, Scott Wagner. Hey there. How you doing, man? I'm doing great. Doing great. Yourself? Doing pretty good on this Monday. Rainy Monday. A rainy Monday. But you know, it was kind of humid earlier, but then it's kind of cooling off a little bit. I guess because it's dropping later in the evening, so that makes it, you know. A lot better. Absolutely. Absolutely. So how's it been going, man? Uh, things have been going. Things have been really busy lately uh, in directions that I never would have predicted, but it's been uh, it's been an interesting ride. Well, you're in the film game, and in the film game, it's, it's, it's so unpredictable. Uh, it's the whole movie magic thing, you know? So Right, right. So, like, Kind of give me, I want to give, well, let me just ask you a few questions so I can give the listening audience a little, so you can give them a little background. Sure. Info on yourself. Now, one of the first things that jumped off at me was like, I'm on your Facebook page. You can find it there, Scott Wagner on Facebook. First thing that jumped off at me, like, you have wrote, produced, and directed over a hundred films. Am I correct? That is correct, yes. Wow. That's like now massive. most most of those uh, are shorts. Uh, I've done five feature films, uh, six if you in, if you include one that uh, didn't make it out of the computer safely. Okay. Um, and everything else has been uh, shorts, uh, and that includes a lot of films that I made early, certainly early in my career. Uh, uh, going all the way back to 1969, when I first picked up a film camera that was real eight millimeter film with a, a wind up crank on the side of it. Wow. Well, I mean, like, well, you, you, you kind of went a little bit further back than me. I, you know, I was I started yeah. out with I started out with VHS, so you know, I mean, uh -huh. so you know, nobody's doing VHS anymore. So, but you know what? It's like I always tell people, whatever you can get your hands on to make a movie with, make a movie. If, you want, if that's what you, you know, decide to do, make a movie. That's absolutely true. I, I see a lot of people on social media talk about what kind of camera should I get, you know, and this, that, and the other thing. And it doesn't matter if you're if you're at the point where you're asking what kind of camera you need to get. It probably doesn't matter what kind of camera you get. You want to just get something that can tell a story. Tell a story. It can be your it can be your cell phone. It can be an old VHS camera. It can be, you know, uh, DLSR. It, it, the important thing is find some way to tell a story visually. Right. Don't worry about it, you know. And as I, I always tell people when they're looking, you know, well, I'm just getting into filmmaking and I want to get a really good camera. You want to make your mistakes as cheaply as possible. And when people are learning they're going to make a lot of mistakes. Yes. Nobody ever thinks that because when you envision your film, 
naturally you envision it as perfect and everything is going to work and nothing's going to go wrong and all the actors are going to hit their marks and have wonderful performances. All the lighting's going to be great. And in reality, especially when you're just getting started, none of that happens. None of it. <laughs> and, and, and that's okay because it's part of the learning process. It's a learning so process. Don't, don't spend boatloads of money when you're first getting started. Make it simple. Make it in your backyard. Do it with friends. Make it as inexpensively as possible and learn because you'll see your mistakes. They'll be glaringly obvious at first. Right. And once, once you learn, okay, now I know not to do that, then you move on to the next stage and then the next stage and then the next stage. Uh, when I was in college uh, in film school, I started something I called the quantum film series. Why I picked quantum, I have no idea. Uh, I think it meant, I think it, I thought it meant something different like than it did. Quantum leap or something. <laughs> exactly. But this was long, this was back in the early 70s before quantum leap was, okay. anybody knew what that was. Um, and I, I figured I'm going to take five films and each one I'm going to specialize in doing some discipline, some aspect that I really need to learn. Right. One of them was all about composition. How do I compose this image to tell the story? I didn't care about the acting. I'm not going to care really about the lighting. The script doesn't really matter. I want to get these compositions to where people are going to go, wow, that's really a good composition. Right. And then there was another film that was all about really dramatic lighting. And that was kind of a like a, a two-minute monster movie. But I wanted the lighting to just be really stellar in that. Okay. Another one was, okay, I wanted to, the, the story, I got to work on my storyboarding. So I know in advance, before I even shoot a frame of film, what is this going to look like? Let right. me plot this out so it's all on paper so I don't have to spend so much time out in the field. And then another one was uh, working with sound. How do I make a sound film? And this was back in the days when most of my tools were all silent. Mm -hmm. You know, we didn't have, we weren't able to shoot in the field with eight millimeter film right. at right. that time. Right. But I had a sound projector. And so I ended up, okay, I have to learn how to dub dialogue. Right. And, and this was before I knew the term ADR. Right. Uh, and it was a Bolex eight millimeter projector and it had a microphone that came out of the side of it. And I'd run the film back and forth and it was the original print. So, you know, the more often we took getting our takes right, the more likely it was there were going to be scratches on the film. But okay, I'm learning as I go here. It's a, it's a learning and, process. Uh, it's a learning process. And, uh, and so, you know, as, as time goes on, you make your mistakes get more subtle. They never go away, but right. they become more subtle. And then you can start thinking, OK, I can start investing some money here that I'm not just throwing away. Right. Well, OK, so are you originally from Cincinnati or where are you, where are you from? No, I'm from Northern California. I okay. grew up in a small farm town, farm town outside of Sacramento. OK. So you left California to come to Cincinnati. Why do you do that? Um, well, my day job has always been, once I graduated from film school, and it was during the recession in the late 70s, okay. nobody was hiring. Okay. I mean, it was really tough to get a job. 
and I was starving and I tried doing the Hollywood route and that didn't pan out. Um, and I got offered a job in television as a news photographer. Okay. And at first I wasn't interested in that at all, but I started realizing, wait a minute, they're going to give me professional camera gear and tripods and lighting and microphones and the whole nine yards. And I've got to learn how to tell a visual story really efficiently, like right. 90 seconds or less. And, uh, and so I got a job in uh, my first job was actually as vacation relief in Boston okay. for the Bicentennial. Okay. From there, I went to Santa Barbara. I got a full-time job in Santa Barbara. And from there, I moved up to Eugene, Oregon. Okay. And then finally, after like six years in Eugene, I was able to come home to my hometown, basically in Sacramento, and I uh, worked at TV stations there. And uh, and that was a nightmare. I mean, it was it was not that was not a very uh, skilled market. Okay. Um, and so from there, it's like okay, I've got a the station I was working at was going bankrupt, and uh, they they sold the company, and the new company new owners said, well, we'll buy it, but. If we're going to buy it before we do, you have to lay off 20% of your staff. Wow, 20% is a lot. It, and I didn't want to be part of And I was part of that 20%. Okay. So i got to find a job, and I've got to find one right now. And so I ended up uh, finding a job in Cincinnati and moving moving here. So it was kind of a shift in the cosmic axis to come here from California. I can imagine. Uh, but it was like, okay, I'm here. I need to just buckle down. I don't want to move around. I need to, you know, just stay at one place. And so I uh, made Cincinnati my home and, and uh, I've been here ever since. Okay, so it, it's, 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 you're kind of in a way it makes me think of myself because as far as the whole Hollywood thing, because you left where, you know, the, the, the movie capital of the world is to come to Cincinnati where so many people are like leaving from everywhere to try to get to LA Hollywood or whatever because they're looking right. to make a big splash or become a celebrity or become a star or become whatever. And uh, it's this is the thing I always tell people. Like, if you're passionate about the craft or about filmmaking, you do it because of that reason. If your goal is to be on the red carpet or an entertainment tonight and become rich and famous, you might have a better shot possibly at hitting the super lotto. You know what I mean? Because it's like, it's, it's, it's one of those kind of things that you, you can't sort of gear yourself in a direction to like make that happen. Like if you're getting into this to become rich, you know, it's, I don't, oh, I just, absolutely. I, it's, it's just not, it, you might want to think about doing something else, you know, because for myself, like I used to always have people say, you know, I thought you'd like move to New York by now. I thought you moved to California by now. And my, always, my question, I've been like, why do you thought that? You know, why was you thinking that? And, and then most people thinking is because you're making movies and that's where all of this stuff happens at. And it's like, no, right. movie, movies yeah. happen wherever you make them at. Yep, Absolutely. So you you, you was never that. So I, what, what I take from you is you're more like that guy who that's 
passionate about the whole craft, passionate about cinema, and it's it's about making movies and not so much about. You know, I mean, everybody who wouldn't want a deal if somebody came along like, hey, you know, well, Scott, we want to sign you to this major picture deal. I mean, I'm pretty sure you wouldn't turn it down, but that's that's not the you know the the the, the main goal. I think the main is, is what I'm getting from you is kind of like the, the goal is is because you're passionate about the craft. Yeah. Uh, yes, and yeah, absolutely. Uh, with a couple caveats, I'm probably one of those really really odd ducks that that if somebody came to me and said, well, we'll give you $50 million or $100 million to make a film, I'd probably turn them down. Um, I don't, when money, when you get, when people start handing you money, that comes with a lot of strings, yeah. a, a lot of creative strings and a lot of upper management that's watching out to see, you know, and, and double guessing everything you do. And, and, you know, that I, I had that opportunity, uh, you know, and when I went to film school, I went to film school in San Francisco. One of my classmates was Steven Zalian, who went on to write Schindler's list and got an Academy award for it. And I, you know, I know I have several classmates who went to Hollywood and, and they made a good living. Um, and I think Steve, Steven Zellian is probably the most successful, uh, but you can go and make a, a middle-class living there as, right. as a, uh, as a director of photography or, a, you know, a first assistant or an editor, or, you know, there's lots of jobs there other than the big kahuna director, you know, the big Spielberg kind of person. Right. But my goal uh, and I've honed this ever since film school, and it was it was reinforced by getting into television news, is being able to network and make movies literally with no money. I mean, yeah. that's kind of been my gospel, is being able to make a high-concept film and do things that people would think are impossible. Right. But it just takes more effort on the end of networking and finding how out how to do it, uh, where otherwise, if you may spend five years trying to raise enough money to make a movie, um, I can bypass all of that and make it in a much shorter period of time because I don't have to raise money. I just go out and say, OK, if I need like in the riddle of the spider's web. I needed uh, a freighter, an ocean-going freighter. Mm -hmm. And I had scenes of uh, our characters are talking, you know, are are in the wheelhouse. They're in the galley. They're out on the deck. They're walking. And, you know, okay, I don't have, how am I going to do that with no money? Right. And and through, uh, for the the scenes with the actors, um, the Kentucky Film Commission, uh, helped greatly with that and located uh, on the Mississippi River in Illinois, of all places, um, a, uh, a pilot boat, which okay. is like a master, it's like a tugboat that goes up and down the Mississippi River. Okay. And it's much larger and they've got, you know, big decks and a big wheelhouse and all that. And they found one that was uh, dry docked, that was in for servicing. So, okay. Nobody was using it. 
and got a hold of the company that owned it. They, you know, we we had uh, uh, five actors, four actors that we had to take out to uh, drive out there um, to film these scenes. Okay. And we had people donate money for gas. Um, we had two hotels donate lodging for us because we had to stay overnight. Uh, and basically the whole thing was, they, and the, the, the boat was donated. So we were able to do the whole thing. It was a lot of work because we had to drive straight through to get there. I was awake for like 30 hours driving there, shooting the scene mm -hmm. and driving right back. So it was really, really hard work, but it was great stuff. And then for the big wide shots of the freighter, we found the freighter museum okay. up in Toledo. Okay. And they they've got a full size freighter just sitting at the dock there. See. And uh, so we went up and did drone shots there. I got somebody to volunteer a drone, and we went up and uh, shot the drone, cut out the background, and put it in the middle of uh, the Caribbean during a hurricane. Now the riddle and, of the spider. Uh, I mean, to cut you, but that's your that's your most recent movie, isn't it? Isn't it? Uh, that is, okay. yes, yes. Okay. And uh, but I've been doing that. Uh, gosh, the first time, uh, first feature film that I did here in Cincinnati was called The Spider's Web. It was the original Spider's Web and made in 1995. Okay. And uh, it involves a flying car. You know, we had a 1967 Chevy Camaro that uh, you know the script called for it to have. Uh, air skirts around it wings basically and fly it through downtown cincinnati and i made contact with a uh one of the last auto shop classes in the tri-state okay and found a out at glen Estee high school their last year and i went to the teacher of the auto shop class uh and said hey here's what i need i've got an old rusting hulk that Somebody gave me an old stock car of a, of a Chevy Camaro. We meet, need to make it look brand new, put wings on it that work, aerolons and, and flaps and all that kind of stuff. Would you guys like to do that as a school project? Mm -hmm. And his eyes lit up and said, absolutely. Because his kids were like, you know, they thought their lives were going to be nothing more than turning bolts in a gas station. Right. And here's a chance to make a, a, a working prop for a feature film that's going to be in prime time on television. Wow. And they just jumped into it on both feet and absolutely loved the process, made an amazing car. Um, DuPont Paint donated all the paint for it. We had a metal, uh, metal fabrication place uh, donate all the steel for it. Uh, we got new grills from, from uh, Delco. And, I mean, just all kinds. Whatever we needed, it was donated. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we got a fully rigged flying Chevy Camaro. <laughs> and that was just one of a million different things that we had way back then. And it was all by just seeking out people and asking. But there's a, there's a caveat to all of that. There's right. a catch. Is... If you're making a movie with no money right. and you're asking all your actors to work for free yeah. and all your cast and crew and all the people donating goods and services for it, one, you got to have your act together so you're not wasting anybody's time. Right. You right. got to know your craft 
So when the movie's finished, nobody's embarrassed and saying, oh, God, I wish I never <laughs> set foot on that. Right. You know, because you're asking people to work really hard. Plus, all of your sponsors have to believe that you're doing this for a good cause. Right. That you're not doing it to, to make a bunch of money that the director is going to run off with and right. nobody gets paid and nobody. And so what I do now, that film, the original spider's web was to make science and education cool and hip okay. to where kids would want to watch this and see these two brilliant teenagers engaging the world. They're athletic, they're attractive and they're brilliant in physics yeah. And I wanted to make it to where kids would watch the movie and go, I want to be like that guy. Yeah. And, and so the, the sponsor said, absolutely, we want part of that. And yeah. uh, now, now what I do is uh, if I make a film, it's, it, we align with a charity. And okay. all, if the money makes money, if the movie makes money, and I never say that it will, because right. I don't know. Yeah, you don't know. But it's if it makes, you never know. No. If the movie makes money, nobody gets it except this charity. So don't expect a paycheck. I don't get paid. Nobody gets paid. We're doing it because we love doing it, and we want to help this organization. Yeah. It's, it's, it's one of those things because, like I said, I know a lot of people who uh, well, I've met different people who, you know, they get into this because they may have some type of, they may feel like they're very creative or they always had an idea to tell a story. And oftentimes their their end game is to somehow make it to Hollywood, which is that I mean, if that's what you want to do, that's what you want to do. But yeah, right. yeah. But for me, yeah. it was kind of like I, my background was in photography, and before that, I used to sketch. So I was always like, just like to create. So uh, mm -hmm. it was never like, oh, I want to do this because I want to be famous and all that kind of stuff. It was just like, no, I like to create stuff, and and I like to show the stuff that I created. So that's sure. to this day, it's kind of still the same thing. Like I was telling somebody just the other day, like they was asking like, well, you know, what do you hope to do with all of this? You know, your project or whatever that you're working on. I said, well, the biggest thing for me right now is sometimes is like to do something that I feel proud of. And that when I do a, a screening that I can stand at the back of the theater, watch people watch the movie. And I feel good about the work that I put on the screen. After Absolutely. That, after that, whatever happens, happens. But that's that's the thing for me. It's just I just like I'm just an artist, and I like to create. Absolutely. And of course, as a creative, we're looking for validation from other people, and so we want. I mean, fame is a nice thing if you know, as long as it doesn't go to your head. Yeah. That people want to say, "Oh yeah, I want to see Lee's new movie." I right. want, I, I've heard, you know, I've seen this last one. It was great. I want to see it. Let me bring my friends in because I know they're going to have a good time. Right. Right. And, and, you know, and that's on steroids. That's what Hollywood fame is all about. Yeah. Um, but in Cincinnati, it can happen too. And there's a lot of, you know, successful people that at the independent film level, you know, they'll have a following yeah. of folks Definitely. and, and that that works, and that's growing and, uh, a lot here too in Cincinnati. You have it's like if as from because see back when I got into this, I remember I was a photographer at the time, and then I had a guy who another photographer friend who called me. He was uh, had an offer to uh, do some behind the uh, some still shots behind the scenes for 
local filmmaker or whatever. And at that time, I didn't know of anybody who was making movies. So he couldn't go do the gig. So he asked me, would you want to go do that? And I was like, yeah, I'll go do that. So it was, it was like, it was my first introduction because for most people, we have this impression that the only way movies are made is like what you see on TV. There's these big trucks pull up and all this equipment is pulled out and you got like 80 people walking around and folks with walkie-talkies and clipboards and all this kind of stuff. And a lot uh-huh. of times that can be the impression you think that it takes all of this stuff and all that money and all them tools and equipment to make a movie. But then my first introduction was a local guy here named Tyrone Richardson who was shooting a movie. Uh, I can't remember the title of it. And so I, I, I saw that, and I was kind of like, this is not what I thought filmmaking or whatever the process was because he didn't have all the big trucks and he didn't have a bunch of crew people walking around. It was a very small crew, and it was kind of like, so you can make a movie like this. And that kind of, you know, was the first thing that kind of like sort of, it opened my eyes to the whole independent game. And then, right. then I yeah. learned about Robert Rodriguez and that just to- totally blew the doors off of me. But uh, the, the, the your, your movie, The Riddle of the Spiderweb, like, the, how did you, like, because I'm always curious about sometimes when people come up with like a storyline or whatever for a movie, like, how did that come about? How did that come about? Well, the characters, uh, it's a franchise. It's the third Spider's Web film that I've made. And uh, I've loved the characters. Uh, Philip Harrison is this teenage physics genius whose father had uh, a theory that was considered crackpot science about gravity obstruction. And um, Philip Harrison is always trying to prove that his dad, before he died, was not crazy and not a crackpot. Um, and he meets Malcolm Scott, who is uh, also very, very intelligent and not, maybe not a physics genius, but very good at physics. But he had been given, uh, when he was growing up, his great-grandmother had told him a riddle of the spider's web, okay. which goes, what is like the spider's web, delicate and beautiful, with strands that go as far as the spider can take them, and every action sends vibrations that affect its entire net of life. Okay. Okay. And it's an old African riddle. Um, and uh, nobody in his family had been able to solve it for like four generations. And he became obsessed with this riddle. And through the course of the original movie made in 95, um, through a near-death experience, he realizes, he, he comes to understand what this riddle means, mm-hmm. that in a very literal sense, the entire universe is connected. And not just connected, you know, of, of you know, uh, in some sort of spiritual way, but that every action that happens on planet Earth has a million connections to everything else that happens that the wooden TV tray that's in front of me can be connected to the ice age. Um, and in, in all this stuff. And so as these films go on, he delves more and more into what that means 
and what you can do with that. So when we get to the point of the riddle of the spider's web, he finds out that his family has uh, uh, relatives in uh, Martinique in the Caribbean. And, uh, And so I wanted to explore, okay, let's take this riddle Two things we I wanted with Malcolm to be able to to go deep into the not just the origins of this riddle, but what how far could you take this if you knew that okay everything's connected mm-hmm. um, and and people can figure out now that say Procter and Gamble why is Procter and Gamble in Cincinnati well Procter and Gamble is in Cincinnati because um, back uh, a million years ago with the Ice Age, another connection to the Ice Age, when the Ice Age came down, the glaciers came down into Cincinnati and they pushed all the dirt out and then they retreated and they left what kind of soil? Clay. And the, when the pioneers came here, they realized nothing grows in this crap except corn. Okay. So they started growing corn. And when they had corn, they grew so much corn, they didn't know what to do with it. What do you do with corn? Well, feed it to the pigs. So that's where Porkopolis came from in Cincinnati, is we had all this corn because of the Ice Age. So we had a bunch of pigs to eat the corn. Well, what do you do with the pigs? You can slaughter the pigs and eat the pigs. We're sick of eating pigs. What else can you do with it? I know. How about if you make soap out of the, out of the fat? Okay. That's why Procter & Gamble is in Cincinnati and nowhere else because of the pigs because of the corn because of the clay because of the ice age how deep is that and so that's that's it's that whole connection thing everything is like like you said absolutely yeah and so if you take that what if i'm thinking what if you if you can reverse engineer that can you look forward or look at other things like could you say well, Procter and Gamble is here, or you you've figured out why something exists in this moment. Can you extrapolate what's going to happen in the next moment? Mm-hmm. Can you predict literally predict the future if you know enough of the threads of what's going on? Just like doctors now can say, okay, uh, you have this this kind of cell in your blood you're going to develop cancer right. right or you know you've got you've got this gene in your blood you're likely to develop sickle cell anemia or lupus or you know whatever yeah um and and could you do that with other things like people's behaviors if somebody is you know, behaving like, you know, uh, in a very dictatorial way and knows how to manipulate media, you know, what are the chances this person could become a dictator? Uh, And if this person becomes a dictator in a country that has certain freedoms and democracies and things they're used to, what's the chance you could predict this person could become a dictator and then get overthrown yeah and 
And could that could it be a violent overthrow? Well, if you know the kind of people you're dealing with and all those. And so you can start seeing how things work. And and so I wanted to look into that. And then I also wanted to push the boundaries of Philip Harrison and his he's been able to prove gravity obstruction in these previous things. The government doesn't want him to have it because he's an angry 18 year old kid who could change the course of world economies by blocking gravity. We don't need roads. We don't need gasoline. We don't need, you know, that it, it could upend whole economies across the world. We can't let that be in the hands of an 18 year old kid with anger management issues. Right. And so, you know, they take it away from him. What does he do? Where is he going to go with, you know, they keep saying, no, you can't have that. Well, being the kind of kid that he is and his personality, he's going to find a way. And people are going to start seeking him out who have heard about it and try to exploit this kid because he's vulnerable. And so that's where the storyline came from, is just extrapolating the characters from free previous incarnations. And, okay, where where would this lead? And, you know, is it good? Is it bad? Or is it just, you know, it's an adventure. So, you know, I've got to put it in an adventurous circumstance. And, uh, you know, that's where, long story short, that's where that all came from. But see, that's the beauty of cinema. That's the beauty of making movies and telling stories. Because that, what you just explained, like even the whole ice age, the clay, the corn, the pigs, all of that stuff connected to Procter Gamble, that's pretty deep. Like, it's probably pretty sure people listen to it and they're probably thinking right now, like, hmm, wow, I never knew that. And I'm pretty sure all of that stuff, what you just explained, is real. Then you got a person who, like, you know, and what you what you brought from that and connecting it to your your movie, and then you have a person somewhere on the other side of the country or whatever, he just have an idea in his head of a, a guy who uh, is being, his mom was whatever, is kind of strange, and something bad happened to his mom where he basically end up wearing a sack over his head and he kills people that come to the camp where he used to live at, you know? It's, you know what I mean? It's kind of like, it's just the far ends of how a story can come about that is still entertaining. Because that's what this all is about. That's what I mean. That's what filmmaking is. It's all about entertaining. Entertainment. Time. It's about entertainment. Absolutely. And sometimes, Absolutely. You know, and that's what I look at, like, you know, I think about sometimes when people, like, have an idea, they have a story, they be like, well, it ain't really, like, you know, it ain't always got to be something that's, you know, very deep. It ain't got to be something always very intellectual. It just got to be something that entertains because that's what the whole purpose of what you want to get people in the theater. You want them to be entertained. Absolutely. Either it's by yeah. something like what you were explaining or it just be about a guy who happens to run around looking for people that's camping at my camping ground and want to just slash them up. Still yeah, absolutely. And, and the key to a lot of it is whether you're, you know, doing a micro budget film or a Hollywood blockbuster is always to try and be as original as possible to not, you know, use old stereotypes, not use old cliches. Right. Uh, and that, that's a real creative challenge because it's so easy for all of us as writers to just, you know, well, 
the first thing that comes to my mind is such and such. Well, which is probably based on something you've already seen and become can be really easily a cliche or a stereotype. And people say, oh, I've seen that before. Yeah. Nothing new here. Right. And so it's, you know, you might start with that in your first draft. But as I'm fond of saying, the only purpose of the first draft is to get to the second draft yeah. and uh, and find look at your script and look at your story and say, OK, this could be better and, and you, it could be more original. When you, when you think because I'm thinking like, you know, just listen to what you were just explaining there, uh, that that's probably even more challenging in a way for say, a young filmmaker of the day because we're so saturated with different, well, it, we're so saturated with genres that you see them everywhere because we're so, we have so much access today to uh, watching uh, movies and stories than we ever had before because before it was like either you, you went to your local theater, if it was whatever you paid back then, you went to your drive-in, there was like, you know, whatever movie that was on television. Uh, it definitely wasn't a lot of commercial films. But today, you got Hulu, you got Netflix, you got Prime, you got Disney, you got, it's so much stuff that, that yeah. you just kind of like, to, so you have to be even more in a sense, I think, uh, especially not to, to fall into the, 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 the trappings of what that's constantly out there that we see all the time to be original makes it absolutely more challenging because you just, I mean, sometimes it's like how much stuff today is really so original because it's just like, I think we just, our brains just become so marinated with so much stuff that we see constantly that's being cranked out, you know, nonstop. Right, right. Absolutely. Like Hollywood, you know, it's like I, I, I had this thing sometimes, like this love-hate relationship with Hollywood because sometimes they, <laughs> to me, it's like sometimes they, they do something and they get it right and it's like, wow, that was really thought-provoking. That movie lingered with me days after. But then, you know, oftentimes with Hollywood, because it's like anything, it's a business and it's about profit and so, you know, it's like, hey, it's like, okay, for instance, like, the Marvel stuff, I like. I like some of the action stuff. I like some of this. I'm not a big comic book fan. I don't know all the ends and out like some people do because some people I know that's like really deeply into that stuff. But it's like right. I, I I do find it entertaining. But I understand with Hollywood, see they they find they didn't realize they understand the entertainment value of it as far as dollars. And I remember reading this thing um, online. It was some years back, and it was. It was. I can't think. It was. A, I think it was written by this director. I can't remember who it was. But he told us this, this sort of scenario that Hollywood has, like a studio. They they'll make maybe say ten films from this particular studio for that year, and they'll gamble sometimes on one blockbuster to make up for all of the loss <laughs> that they had on the other movies that didn't succeed, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, uh -huh. and, like, and that's, that's like, it's like you, you couldn't even, you couldn't sell that concept nowhere else in this industrial complex of America. It's like you couldn't go to General Motors and say, okay, 
we're going to make 20 cars. 19 of them probably won't sell. <laughs> but this one yeah. right here, <laughs> we're banking on this one right here to make up for the loss on those other 19. You know what I mean? Like, they'd be right. like, get out of here. You know, you, you better, you know they're not going to go for that. But in Hollywood, that's, I mean, they, that's, they, they do that. Well, and, and they can because if a movie pays off, it pays off, it can pay off really huge. Right. And, and fund other projects. Right. Um, and, and so, you know, for every, you know, Avengers Endgame, Right. Okay, well now we can afford to to experiment with some other stuff because we just made over a billion dollars. Yeah, and that kind of like made me think about, you know, just that the money value that's placed on that made me think about what you were saying earlier about, you know, uh, if you was offered a budget for X amount of dollars, millions of dollars to do that, how you probably be like, no, I pass on that because I'm the kind of the same way because the amount of pressure that a lot of times people who are uh, thriving to get into this business and want to get onto that sort of level where, you know, they would love to be a main character and something like the Avengers. It's, it's tremendous pressure because I was listening to Don Cheadle not long ago in an interview and he talked about when, you know, doing one of the Avengers movies, how mm -hmm. he was away for like five months and how it just took him away from his family, you know, and it's like, his whole life and being on location was all about that movie. But, and he was talking about just the pressure of it, but then he was like, you know, but the checks though, you know, the amount of money yeah. that they pay me for this is crazy. It's like, they pay me enough money that's going to take care of a lot of people in my family for generations, you know? And it's like, mm -hmm. you know, that's kind of like that balance thing for me. It's kind of like, that's why I like to just be the independent filmmaker, like you said, to to be able to make a movie with no money at all, you know, my, my, I always like to say that uh, I I spend more on beating my actors than I actually put into the film, you know. And right. So. Yeah. Yeah. Now. Yeah. So I, I so so when you look at today, you know, the, this this industry that we're in, and uh, with the way technology sort of have in a way can kind of dictate the process because so I was watching a commercial the other day where they were showing uh, I guess it's the latest Apple phone or whatever I don't have one I got a Android so I don't know about all this but they were showing this commercial and they were showing how they was making it you know and like they're showing this this the sequence that was taking place in this particular scene then as they the camera pulled back you saw this person like uh, using a an apple to film this and it's like you know i was telling a friend i was like you know that's very possible today i mean it's like that's happening today so it's kind of yeah like, oh yeah you you look at it and it's like a person would think well why do i need to do all of that stuff <laughs> when i can just go down here to my local phone shop cell phone store and buy me one of those apple phones and i can go out and make me a movie and i don't have to buy it a red or a black magic or whatever these other all this camera gear stuff. Do you look at that kind uh, of stuff as like a guy like yourself who's been around this business for a while and, and seen all the different changes? How do you look at that kind of stuff? Do you look at that as, as do it seem like a threat to the business or is it something that, well, that pushes 
the 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 craft or the industry in a better direction or or it furthers it some kind of way to uh, maybe encourage more people to make movies. And then if that's the case, because that's another thing too that I think about is like some things like just because you can do it don't always mean you quote should be the person that's doing it just because you know what I'm saying because it's so accessible right. you know what I mean how do yeah. you feel about yeah. that like where are we at with well, all this stuff you know, you know it's it's uh it's funny the uh the blessing of technology is that anybody can make a movie now the curse of technology is that anybody can make a movie now right I mean, it's exactly, it's two sides of exactly the same coin. Um, you know, it's democratized. And we went, we've been through this before. Uh, when I was making movies in the, in the 70s, um, Super 8 was very popular and it was cheap. You could get a camera for not very much. Uh, it's a, it was very expensive compared to now because you had to buy film and get a process and the like, but uh, it had come down to where you could make a movie for, you know, 25, 30, $40. Um, And, and there was this huge wave of filmmakers that came out of the woodwork, myself included, but gosh, in my high school, we probably had five or six people who got movie cameras and started making movies in, in high school. I think I'm the only one out of high school that, stuck with it um but well no there was one other guy he went into television actually but um you know some of the movies were great some of them were not so great uh and so we're kind of going through that now fortunately i think or maybe unfortunately because of streaming everybody can have a platform everybody can look at you know have their stuff visible for the whole planet to watch right uh, but there's so much of it, and there's so, you know, hundreds of thousands of different filmmakers putting that out there yeah. that it it it's it becomes background noise unless yeah. you find some way of breaking through. Yeah, it yeah, doesn't absolutely. bother me at all that we have everything from cell phones to you know red dragons to be able to shoot a movie on. Right. Um, because in, in one sense or another, we've always had that, uh, at least going back to the late 60s. So um, it's and it gives people the opportunity to give it a try. And I mean, there's whole film festivals out there that will only accept your movie if you made it on a phone. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think so. And, and so that becomes its own niche of what can you do with it. Right. They have their advantages and they have their disadvantages. You know, for the most part, you're not going to get uh, a zoom lens on a, on a phone. It's going to be if you want a close up, okay, walk up closer to your subject, right? You know, or do a, an electronic zoom, which is going to make things the resolution go kind of wonky. Um, and for the most part, it's automatic iris, so it's trying to get you know, a silhouette or something blowed out a little bit is very, very difficult to do. Getting good audio is going to be difficult to do. Um, you know, you don't have 
you can have like one microphone to plug in and you can't have two channels uh, with separate microphones. I suppose they're coming out with an app to where you can split that, but it gets kind of wonky and, and weird because the phone isn't really made for that, Right. Uh, even though you can do it. Um, DLSR cameras are kind of uh, a bone of contention for me. Uh, still cameras came from a whole different background than movie cameras. Right. And so when 35 millimeter still cameras said, oh, we're going to go digital uh, and we'll have this added feature where you could shoot video. Yeah. That's a whole different thing from a movie camera that said, okay, now we're going to go digital and as a cinema camera. And oh, by the way, if you want, you could take a still picture with it. Yeah. Well, right. I mean, it's, 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 it's that thing, too, where, you know, from something that was intended for this purpose, you is somehow someone discovered where, like, the DSLR is pretty much for, like, for the journalist who's out in the field taking steel pictures. Now I can capture uh, some steel shots of this war and a little bit of video. Then someone realized, well... That's pretty cool. You can shoot video with this thirty-five millimeter like type camera, and if we do more and make some changes and alter this and do that, we can make movies with it. Then boom, and then, right? You know, like right. The same thing with phones. And and there are you know film festivals for that. For, yeah. You know, do you shoot on a DLSR? And that's fine. And they put out a beautiful picture. And it's it's not ergonomic. I don't think nearly as much as a cinema camera for making cinema. But you can do it, yeah. and it looks great, and I, I can't badmouth it. Um, I tried making a feature film using a, uh, a Sony still camera, PLSR, and it was a nightmare. And it's like, okay, I spent $1,000 for this camera back in 2012, and I pretty much wasted my money. I'm going to have to start over. Right. And, uh, uh, you know, it's just it, it just wasn't ergonomic to, to work in some kind of flow and uh, you know it's hard to import into an editing program because the editing program was looking for a you know a cinema camera right right so there's, but you know this, everybody makes it work yeah there's this documentary I always kind of get the, 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 the title of it I think I kind of mix it up get it backwards or whatever but you can find it on YouTube and I think it's called Press, play, and pause, or press, pause, and play, or something like that. If you, either way, it's, it's uh-huh. like you're fine. And basically, that's what the documentary kind of deals with, or it, it, or it looks into this whole thing of today with the advantage or disadvantage of all of the technology that allows so many people who ordinarily might not ever thought about this to get into this whole genre of filmmaking. And then for those who are, say, who are uh, people who have, like, you know, put time into this, went to school for this or whatever, really studied the craft, you got a person who got an iPhone and a, a laptop or whatever, a tablet, who just, you know, kind of sitting and watching stuff on uh, Netflix or YouTube or whatever, decided I want to start making movies. And 
a lot of times I think too that it's like they may not put in the work this to study the craft like that, but sometimes I get depending on some individual, they don't have to because they just have that eye for that stuff, and that's great. But what they talked about in this documentary was that the saturation, not even just in film, but in music as well, where oh, yeah. the fan who used to sit in the audience or come to the theater or come to the concert because they wanted to see the, art, the artist perform or to see the movie, that fan today is kind of a novel thing because they feel like I can be, I'm the guy on the stage, I'm the guy who's can put movies on the screen so it's like it's not that it's not that sort of technology sort of taking the mystery out of sort of all of that stuff so then the it's it's so saturated that it's just like even today it's like when you look at stuff sometimes like for me like when i'm watching stuff on even it's on netflix or prime or whatever it's so many different choices that you have to go through so much stuff to just to try to find something that you know, that you feel it's like worth your time watching because there's so much, again, like so much noise out there. Right, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, so that's kind of like, that's my only thing with that, is, is, is that do, do we, are we creating something that, you know, in another 20 years where the this, this, this sort of... Uh, it becomes so saturated that what would the, would the value of it still be the same? You know what I mean? Oh yeah, absolutely. In fact, I think it's probably, you know, the value is, is probably already kind of waning diminishing or, or there, there's so much, like you say, there's so much noise that uh, it's, it's tough to get even in, in uh, you know, as an independent filmmaker, uh, trying to get an audience. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I try to saturate as, you know, do a lot of stuff on advertising on Facebook and, and YouTube and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, 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 uh, people are, are so into, I, I guess there's so many people that do their own movies. Right. They don't want to see somebody else's movies. They just want right. to see their movies. Right. That's that's, the, that's what I'm saying. If it's like if yeah, everybody's so you know doing this now, it's just like you know, uh, it's just like I remember uh, uh, a thing I saw with Spielberg, and he was talking about uh, he was watching something with his kids or something, and he was looking at something. It was some movie that the kids were really into, and he was like, he was looking like every. 30 seconds or less there was a cut and and he was talking about how like studios today producers on a lot of these major uh, uh, films they put that kind of pressure even on the filmmaker themselves like they don't want to see like th- why, why you got th- this scene here why, why is it like the camera is, is set up on this two shot for like over a minute like you need to cut something like they need to be moving and all of that. Oh, absolutely. That comes from, you know, MTV, which, you know, introduced the whole music video genre where 
uh, it programmed us where because because that was such a huge thing where we was watching these you know music videos and the, and the fast cuts and the fast edit that translated over into film, where our brains has been trained now to like we have to see these things that move fast, and when I think about a movie like uh, Citizen Kane, it's like he 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 done something like that today. You know, they be, it's only a you know a select few of people that could appreciate something like that. Oh right, yeah, true, true that. Yeah. Although I have to admit, uh, when I was in film school, we were taught the average shot, edited shot, should not by average last more than three seconds. Wow. And uh, uh, unless you have a motivating reason uh, to have the shot linger. Yeah. Uh, it should it, it should be three seconds. Uh, two seconds is too fast unless it's like done for a stylistic reason. But uh, if you don't have stuff going on, uh, you you got to keep it to about three seconds. I've pretty much tried to stay to that unless there's again a motivating reason or it's too distracting to leave that. Uh, I think my longest at one point in the Golem, uh, 1999, I got a shot that lasted a minute and a half. Okay. Uh, and it was a slow zoom into, uh, a, uh, woman who was betraying, uh, her rabbi by, uh, producing a vial of blood. And, uh, uh, it, it, it was a, a long buildup for that. And, and the camera goes past, you know, one guy outside listening in to a conversation in a barn. And then it, the camera slowly goes into the barn until it starts off in a wide shot that the people that are talking are very tiny in the frame. And by the time the shot ends, uh, they're, uh, uh, the the girl's face literally fills the entire frame uh, from her eyebrows to her chin and nothing else can be seen. Okay. And, uh, you know, it took a long, you can't rush that shot because then the audience gets disoriented. Right. So you got to kind of take your time to get up to go from that wide to that close. Right. But uh, yeah, it's uh um, people's, I mean, there's some physiology that goes into that and some science of, you know, what, how much before people start tapping their feet going, okay, oh, yeah. get on with it. Yeah. Especially today. Yeah. yeah. You, 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 like I said, you couldn't, I mean, you could only get away with doing some type of, like I said, a movie like a Citizen Kane or some of that kind of stuff back then. You know, yeah. Only a certain type of audience or a, a viewer that, that could appreciate something like that. So. Right. What do you? What are you working on now? Do you got any uh, uh, upcoming project you, you're in the works, or are you in the midst of working on something? Uh, I'm uh, as far as filmmaking goes. Uh, I'm I'm percolating on an idea that is too in too much early stages to talk about. Okay. Uh, it may I may try to do another Spider's Web film as an animated film. Okay. Uh, which is totally untrod territory for me. And I've got a lot of things I've got to check off to make sure that I could even feasibly do something like that. Right. Um, 
but uh, currently I'm doing, uh, uh, I'm writing a novel okay. uh, about the Pony Express. And uh, I've been working on uh, this digital magazine, a uh, horror magazine for independent filmmakers okay. uh, to come out for Halloween. Uh, that's all Sounds about cool. how indie filmmakers seem to be very much attracted to making horror movies and a huge fan base for just the more blood and guts, the better. Yeah. And, and what is that? You know, what, what's the attraction there and what's going on? And, uh, so, um, I actually have an interview with Doug Jones. Okay. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Doug Jones. Name sounds. He is uh, uh, was the creature in the shape of water. Yeah. Okay. Uh, he plays Commander Saru on Star Trek Discovery. Okay. okay. And he was uh, Abe Sapien in Hellboy. Okay. He's uh, most people would never recognize right. Doug Jones because right. he's always in creature makeup. Right. And he lends it. He's from Indianapolis. Okay. He's a local boy. And uh, he loves classic horror movies. And so the films he does are generally horror movies. And uh, so I had a great long, like an hour long conversation with him. He took a break from the set of Star Trek Discovery to talk to me. And uh, um, uh, we got a a retrospective on uh, Mark Burchett, who is sort of the father of independent horror films in Cincinnati in the Midwest. Okay. He did a movie called Vamps back in the uh, early 90s okay. about vampire strippers. That sounds and, good. Uh, yeah, I think I found it. And uh, yeah. he made some money off of it. He did shot it on VHS, as I recall. And uh, real, real low budget. Launched a bunch of careers. And uh, he's made several, had made several horror films since then. He passed away just a few years ago. Uh, but uh, he was all about local independent uh, filmmaking. Mm-hmm. And was very supportive and uh, was around for the uh, original uh, incantation of uh, the Southern Ohio Filmmakers Association. Yeah. And, uh, I, I mean, that that's something that can be... Uh, that project that book that you're doing that's that's because it, it, it made me think about something that when i was uh i was working at a particular company and i met this lady who was like a writer uh producer or something out in la and she she didn't work on like no major major hollywood films but she had worked on a lot of horror flicks and i was telling uh-huh. her about i was you know getting into film and doing this and doing that and she was like you know, what kind of movie are you making? And I kind of told her, and she was like, you know, you ever considered horror? And I was like, I'm a big horror fan, but I was like, at that time, I'm like, that's not where I was crowning the direction I was trying to go in. She was like, that's a direction that you would, you should go in. And she kind of gave me a little spiel of why. And I never forgot mm-hmm. that, you know? And then, and I, and, I, and it, you, it's like horror movies, horror films, People that and, and and people have I put like this. Sometimes the art you can have a, a, a the audience can oftentimes can appreciate low budget horror than they can a low budget of anything else. 
You're absolutely right. Absolutely. Yeah. And she kind of Sometimes the schlockier, the better. Yeah. Just enjoy it. More. Yeah. Yeah. She, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I, I can, I can, I can, I can, I can relate to that. Well, Scott, I'm glad that you came on. I'm glad that uh, we was able to do this interview with you. Uh, got a wealth of like stuff from you, and you know, like the whole. Ice Age, I'm, I'm still on that. The Ice Age, the clay, <laughs> the corn, the pigs. I'm like, man, that's some deep shit. That was pretty deep. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Well, it's been a real pleasure talking with you, Lee. I'm glad to do it. Uh, well, thank you for coming fun. on. Absolutely. And I know you got a show. You got the, what's that, it's the Garrison? Is that a podcast or the Garrison yeah, show? Yeah, the Garrison at Nobleman Square, uh, where we do long-form interviews with uh, filmmakers. Um, and uh, we just dropped our premiere episode just recently with Marlon Vera, who's an international filmmaker, uh, mostly known for doing travel uh, travel films, but he's made a, uh, uh, a thriller movie set in the Brazilian Amazon okay. called Amazon Queen, and uh, uh, did a pretty extensive interview with him here in Cincinnati and uh, he's uh, just fascinating to uh, to talk to about it's a micro budget film uh, more budget than I've ever had okay. uh, he had a real budget and shot on a dragon uh, red dragon okay um, oh, cool. but uh, he did it during COVID and uh, it takes place on a, a river boat in the Amazon and so the only way he could do it during COVID is he brought all the cast and crew on, got them all tested, put them on the boat, and nobody gets off until we're done. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's like a whole other show that we could talk about, the whole process of trying to make movies now during a pandemic because oh yeah, I'm getting ready to start on another project, like, actually tomorrow, and it's like, and I just got through doing one, and it's like, it's crazy, you know, making movies at this time, but, you know, it's... it's People are doing it. It can be done. You just have to be cautious, careful, and yeah, extra stuff. careful. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So if anybody's interested in uh, seeing the the Garrison at Nobleman Square, it comes out about every two weeks. We've got one episode up now. Uh, you can see it at noblemansquare.com, which is my website, uh, or it's also on YouTube. Uh, the Garrison at Nobleman Square. Okay, and I, and I also say, you know, people that's listening, you want to learn more about film, you want to learn more about Scott, follow Scott Wagner, look for him on Facebook. And uh, that's uh, Wegener, W-E-G-E-N-E-R. Uh, most people want to spell it with an A, so yeah. we got to be careful of that. Be careful of that. Um, and there's another Scott Wegener out there who's a comic book artist for Marvel. That's not me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Well, all right, Scott, thanks for coming on the show. Hope you enjoyed My it. My pleasure. We will be doing another one in, uh, very soon. Basement right, show, yes. basement talk. Thank you again, Scott, and we are out. All right, take care. Bye.